Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Father, as you reveal to us things that have been hidden since the very beginning of time, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see them. Help us, Lord, to hear your word and to believe it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. Those are famous words spoken by the prophet Elisha, whom we heard already referred to earlier in our service. Elisha said those words to his servant in 2 Kings 6.16 because that man was fearful of the odds that were stacked against them. The king of Syria was plotting against Israel, but none of his plots could come to fruition. When he inquired whether there was a spy in their midst, his counselors said, we don't have a spy, the problem is Elisha. He tells the king of Israel, the secrets you utter in your bedchamber. Like his prophetic gift informs him in advance of everything that you're planning. So the king of Syria did the obvious thing. He sent soldiers to track Elisha down and to seize him and to do away with him. They found him in the city of Dothan and they surrounded the city with soldiers so that they could take him. So understandably, Elisha's servant was concerned. But Elisha said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And after that, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. Elisha prayed, and the servant's eyes were opened, and he realized, far from being outnumbered, they had the advantage because the heavenly hosts We're all around the prophets. What a gift the Lord gave to that servant to open his eyes in that way, to let him glimpse that reality. When you feel surrounded and threatened, wouldn't it be nice if God were to give you something similar to open your eyes so that you might see the heavenly host, God's armies surrounding you, the overwhelming force of heaven standing there, ready for action, ready to draw its sword and go to war on your behalf? What a comfort that would be to experience what that servant experienced. And yet, that's not what happened at all. 
His eyes were open. He saw the heavenly host, but the heavenly host didn't go to war. They didn't draw their swords. They didn't go to battle and defeat the enemy. That's not the way things worked. The host was present, but it never struck. It never exercised its force. Instead, the victory that was won was won with a little bit of concealment and a little bit of revealing. Just as God opened the eyes of the servants so that He might see, Elisha prayed and God closed the eyes of those Syrian soldiers. And as their eyes were closed, Elisha led them into Samaria into a trap. He had them open their eyes and they were surrounded. The king of Israel said, should we kill them? And Elisha says, no, we should feed them because they're our prisoners now. It's a wonderful story. And when we remember it, we remember it mostly because of that idea of the glimpse of that reality, that spiritual reality, the overwhelming force that's there. Whenever we're in doubt, it's there. And yet that force was never used. And the victory was actually won just with the closing of eyes and the opening of eyes. The kingdom can be hard to understand. Jesus knows this. The kingdom is difficult for us to understand largely because the kingdom doesn't work the way that we want it to work. The kingdom doesn't give us what we want God to give us. We want divine armies. We want overwhelming force, heavenly hosts. When we feel trapped and surrounded, we want God to go to war for us, to draw His sword and to strike We want that unseen, overwhelming force of God to fix things, to do things, to stop things. And yet, it's as if God says, yes, I do have this power. Look, but I'm not going to use it. That's not how I work. I do things differently than that. And then He proceeds to conceal and to reveal, to hide and to show, to close some eyes, and to open others. And that turns out to be the way that God works. As the psalmist might say, Selah, think about that. Reflect on that fact. He has all this power at His disposal. But when we see Him at work, He works differently than that. Parables work differently than that too. We've talked about the way that parables hide things. A parable does conceal, but a parable also reveals. It opens things up. In fact, the parables that we see here are meant to reveal. They're meant to open your eyes to the way that the kingdom works. When Matthew, at the end of our passage, explains the fact that Jesus never teaches without parables, He cites a prophecy. You find this in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, verse 2, these words, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. If you think about that, it may seem like a point is just being reiterated. We've already seen that that Jesus' teaching in parables is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a confirmation that He is the Messiah. He is the one who was promised. But this actually introduces a new note. Because it says here that the teaching of these parables doesn't hide things. It reveals them. It's revealing secrets that have been hidden 
since the foundation of the world. The parables are intended to reveal things. The parables are part of the declaration of the presence of the kingdom. The parables utter the truth that until Jesus had been hidden from everyone, but now that Jesus is here, this truth is being laid bare and eyes are being opened to it. It's true that parables are ambiguous, that they're open to interpretation. It's true that when you hear a parable, the the meaning can be hidden from us. Yes, a parable conceals. But with a little time and a little effort, a parable also reveals. And as we encounter parables, let's pray that God will open our eyes so that we might see that the parables can yield their secrets to us. Jesus uses parables to confide the secrets of the kingdom to the children of the kingdom. We put it that way. Just as Elijah did, Jesus wants to open your eyes to something that's meant to do the same thing that that vision did for that servant to reassure you, to encourage you in the not yet, in the world that we live in now, where the kingdom isn't yet here in its fullness. He gives us a glimpse of a truth that should give us comfort. It's as if Jesus is leaning into us and saying, hey, can you keep a secret? I know how things look, but let me tell you how things are going to be. Not necessarily that, that He's keeping secrets from everybody else, but He's keeping secrets that people desperately want to know and He's hiding them, but, but He's revealing to us things that, that other people are indifferent to or find no comfort in. He's revealing to the children of the kingdom where the kingdom is going and how the kingdom actually works. You see what He's doing, as they did. They could see the quality of His followers, i.e., not much. They could see that He hadn't exactly chosen the best people in society to be His inner circle. He wasn't dealing with scholars. He hadn't gathered together scribes and Pharisees. He had fishermen. You might look at that and think, I'm not that impressed. And Jesus would say, just wait. Just wait. From this small beginning, something is being built. Don't be deceived by the small beginnings of the kingdom. Through the smallest, humblest start, God will bring about the recreation of the world. That's what Jesus is assuring us of here. Now, the kingdom isn't what you expect. It's not what you want. But when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because we come to know people who they are, what they're like, through their work. When you get to know people's work, you become accustomed to the kind of things they do and the way they do it, you have a sense that you know them. Right? You can actually look at what they do and say, oh, I have an idea I know who did this. I know who's responsible for this. And that's how it is with God. Right? God reveals himself in his work. He reveals himself in the way he does things. We know in the course of Scripture, God reveals knowledge of his plan, but not all at once. Right? God gives a little bit here and a little bit there. Knowledge of what he's doing grows over time and comes into fullness. God hides himself in secrets and then takes pleasure in revealing himself to his people when the time is right. We see him doing that as Scripture unfolds. It's a way that he works. It's a way that we should expect him to work. God saves that way. God saves over time, working 
from small to great. So in salvation history, we have this idea, this structure, this movement from hidden secrets to open revelation. We have this secret of development over time taking place. We see God working that way in the Old Testament, and now we see Him working that way in the New. So don't despise it. Don't write it off. Before we began our study of Matthew's Gospel, remember we worked through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied in the days when the first wave of exiles were returning to Jerusalem to restore that city. And the reason why we did this, it was intentional to go from Zechariah to Matthew, is to go to Old Testament prophecy that's pointing to the restoration of the kingdom, to New Testament fulfillment of that prophecy. When we studied Zechariah, we saw the despair of the people. They return to the city of David and they find it a ruin. They return to the temple and they find it a shamble. Those first exiles led by Zerubbabel have the task of restoring things. They rebuild the temple and then they, they have a ceremony where they inaugurate it, but honestly it's depressing because there are people there who remember the old temple and they know that this new one is not up to snuff. They know that the glory days are gone. When they think of the people who built that old temple, they lived in, in a great day. They were great people who did great things. As they reflected on that new temple, they realized that they weren't great. That they were small people who lived in a day of small things. And yet they were told not to despise the smallness of this beginning. Because what was happening there would reach its fulfillment in the greatest possible way. We saw this in Zechariah 4, verses 9 and 10. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, this beginning might be small in the days of the first Zerubbabel, but his heir will complete the temple. He will build it on a lavish scale, not a physical, but a spiritual one. And on that day, you will rejoice. It's as if he were saying, from this seed, a mighty tree will grow. Jesus is the fulfillment of that word. And yet in Jesus' day, that same dynamic is at play. Seeds that one day will be mighty trees. The age of Jesus is a time when things that were hidden from the beginning of the world are coming into focus. When now we can see the history before in its proper light. Now we can see that the feeble spark of Genesis 3.15 has become a flame so bright that the darkness cannot overcome it. And yet, this is just the beginning. The flame will spread. There is more that God intends to do from these humble starts. And in both parables, the parable of the seed and the parable of the leaven, Jesus reveals how God works. He shows us in the metaphors how it is that God does this work. There's a similarity between these two parables when you think about it. The seed on the one hand and the leaven on the other. These are both organic processes, not engineered ones. These are things nature does. Right? Whether it's seeds turning into trees or leavening, leavening flour, these are processes of creation. 
Right? They're organic. They're, they're about growth. They're natural. They're not man-made things that Jesus is referring to here. It makes sense that Jesus would emphasize the natural, organic aspect of the kingdom because the work of the kingdom is the work of recreation, of remaking. If God has shown us in nature how it is that He makes things, it's not surprising that the kingdom where He remakes things would have a similar kind of dynamic. The end goal of the Gospel is new creation. In the spiritual process of recreation, Jesus is, in these metaphors, comparing to the natural process of creation. In fact, if someone came along and said to you, out of nowhere, God is going to recreate, it would be natural to assume that the recreation would resemble the creation. We would expect it to work in the same way. And it does. When you consider God's work of creation, how He creates and sustains the natural world, there is this two-part structure to what God does. First, God speaks the world into existence. He declares reality. He says it is so, and it is. He speaks things that did not exist into existence. And all that work of creation is complete before God rests. And yet, there is an ongoing work too. God does continue to work in the world. In the Westminster Confession, they describe God's works of creation and His works of providence to get at this idea, this twofold aspect of the work of God. That He declares a reality into existence, but then over time, He brings that reality to fullness. We see both of those things in creation. Right? God speaks the world into existence, and then He creates human beings. And as we saw in our lectionary reading, He puts them in the garden to work it and to keep it. In other words, they're there to cultivate the creation. They're there to nurse the things that God has made into greater fullness, to bring those seeds into trees. Right? That's the combination there of how God creates. He, he declares a reality and then He works over time to bring it to fullness. So you might say in creation we see two principles, declaration and duration. And we should expect to see in all God's work some similar kind of structure because, again, your work reveals who you are. So we do see this in God's work of salvation. As I said, in justification, God declares a reality and it is so. God declares unrighteous people to be righteous in His sight. He says it and it is so. But in sanctification, God works in those people through His Spirit over time, bringing that declared reality into greater and greater tangible reality. Like over the course of time, He fulfills the Word that He has spoken. Thinking in a larger sense, the kingdom works this way as well. There's declaration, there's duration. The kingdom is already an established reality. The gospel is a declaration that the kingdom is upon you, that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is a tiny seed. The kingdom, at this point, it's, it's a little bit of leavened dough. It's small, it's negligible. 
But Jesus says, like those small things, it's going to turn into something great. At the same time, the kingdom, the fullness, it's not here yet, but it is coming. Over the course of time, as a result of spiritual effort, the kingdom will become a mighty tree. That little message of the kingdom will work itself into the fabric of the whole world in time. There's another similarity you might observe in the parables. Yes, they're organic processes, processes of nature, but they also involve human hands. Right? The seed is planted, Jesus says. The leaven is worked into the flower by a woman's hands. And so we see something else there as well that's important. The creation only reaches its fullness as a result of human work. Like God made us to cultivate His creation. He made us to give form to the raw material. That's how the kingdom works too. He made us to build the kingdom. He made us to bring the kingdom into fruition. God works salvation for us and in us, but He also works salvation through us. In other words, the kingdom works exactly the way that God has always worked. And what Jesus is saying here should come as no surprise to people who already know how God does things, who already have examples of how God creates. The kingdom may not work the way you expect, but it works exactly the way that God has always worked. We know this. With a little time, a seed becomes a tree in God's world. In God's world, with a little work, a little leaven spreads through the whole lump of dough. That's how things work in the world that God made. You know how they don't work? No army can draw its sword and strike a seed to make a tree. It doesn't work that way. That's not what happens. No army can, can flail the flower with its sword until the lump is leavened. It doesn't work that way in the world that God made. But a bit of leaven and a pair of hands can achieve what no weapon can do. And that's how the kingdom works as well. It's interesting too, that work that that woman is doing, that work of leavening the flour, if you translate that word literally, as they do in the King James, you know what that word is? It's hiding. She's hiding the leaven in the flour. She's hiding that leavened dough in that larger flour. And as she hides it, and as it multiplies, it permeates the whole. That act of hiding will one day reveal everything that is intended. The Word of the Kingdom is being hidden in the world in that same way. The Word of the Kingdom is being folded layer after layer into this world over and over again until in time every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the assurance that these metaphors give us. It's as if Jesus is saying it's natural. Let nature take its course. This is how God does things. It's greater than you realize, even though it looks so small. It couldn't be any other way. Jesus says this. If you look at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we'll get there a few years from now. In Matthew 26, there's this moment where Simon Peter decides it's time to take matters into his own hands. Simon Peter does what the heavenly hosts do not do. 
he draws his sword and he fights for the kingdom. He strikes a blow against the enemies of the kingdom of God. Those who've come to Jesus to arrest Him and to take Him. This is one of those actions of Peter that is so relatable. We talked already about how his confession of faith in Matthew 16 and his denial later in Matthew 26 are both very relatable to us. Peter is a guy we understand. His mistakes are our mistakes. And again, this is one of those moments where I feel like I understand exactly what's going on in Peter's mind. Enough is enough. Somebody's got to do something. Jesus, he's nice, he's kind, he's, he's gentle. Somebody's got to take care of this. Maybe somebody tougher, maybe a fisherman who carries a sword around might be the guy in this moment who will serve the kingdom best. And so he draws his sword and he strikes that blow. And Jesus says, no. No. He says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Think about those words of Jesus. Reflect on what it is that He's saying here. Don't miss it. Like Elisha, Jesus is surrounded by heavenly hosts. Nothing can be done to Jesus against his will. No one has power over him. He only has to speak the word, he says, and 12 legions of angels would be right there, ready to strike. That's how much power he has. If overwhelming force could do the job, Jesus wouldn't need Peter to do it. Because Peter and his little sword are nothing compared to the power of those heavenly hosts. But not only does Jesus say no to Peter, he actually says that by taking this sword, you'll perish by it. What does he mean by that? Now, usually when we think about those words, we interpret them as sort of Jesus' endorsement of nonviolence. We imagine Jesus seeing suddenly this flash of metal from out of Peter's robe, and he's like, Peter has a sword. How did he get that into the garden? No. Jesus knows. Jesus has actually counseled them. You might want to buy a sword. The problem isn't that he has it. The problem is that he trusts in it. The problem is in that moment, as he stands side by side with Jesus, he thinks the way out is for him to draw it and to wield it. Jesus isn't rebuking Peter for having the weapon. He's rebuking him for using it to deliver himself. Because if he trusts in force for deliverance, he will perish. Because no sword can accomplish that work. There's no weapon formed by human hands that can achieve what must be achieved. That's a victory that can only be won in one way. You can reason this way. If the angels of heaven could have won this victory, they would have done it. But this was a victory even they couldn't achieve. Those 12 legions of angels were powerless to do what needed to be done in that moment. If the kingdom isn't brought about by force, then maybe the kingdom can't be brought about by force. 
man can't save himself, then maybe 12 legions of angels can't save him either. Honestly, there's no maybe about it. The kingdom comes the way that it comes out of necessity. It has to be this way. There is no other way. As Jesus says, the Scriptures instruct us, it must be so. It must be so. This cannot be done any other way. The victory over sin and death cannot be won by the sword. It can only be won by sacrifice. The victory over sin and death cannot be won by anyone else but this man, Jesus Christ. Only He can do it, and only He can do it by offering Himself up, which is what He's come to do. (laughs) That's the assurance that we have. When you see your forces are small, when you see all around you it seems as if the kingdom is on its last legs or never even got out of the gate, it seems that God is working with the worst of resources, with the worst of people, that God seems to have all of the odds stacked against Him, that's not the time to despair, but the time to glory. Because that's exactly how God delights to work. He delights in using humble things. He delights in using small things to achieve everything. You might say his battle plan is to start small and to build up his kingdom over time. His plan is to be the tiny seed that grows into a mighty tree. An image here that Jesus undoubtedly intends to refer to Ezekiel 17, where the house of David, where Israel rises from a seed once more into a mighty tree where the birds come and flock, and the birds are Gentile birds who come to find shelter in this renewed tree of the kingdom. His plan is to be the leaven that spreads throughout the dough of the world. His plan is to accomplish everything with next to nothing, and there is no enemy that can stand against him. That's his battle plan. But as you reflect, battle plan isn't really the right word for it at all. Because the way that Jesus intends to win is less like military strategy and more like a force of nature. All creation is being remade by Him. And all creation is on His side and is longing for Him to do what only He can do in the way that He always does it. Jesus wins. But he doesn't win the way a destroyer does. Jesus wins the way that only a creator can. By creating. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.